Matthew chapter 2. We started the series a couple weeks ago. I told you that we would be looking at the whole book of Matthew, and the first week we took a flyover. It was a 20,000-foot view of the whole book. Uh, Last week, we zoomed in quite a bit to the circumstances just surrounding the birth of Christ. Uh, This week, we're going to zoom out a little bit again, and we're going to look at the whole of chapter 2. And the material in this chapter covers anywhere from six months to a couple years. Uh, We don't really know exactly, but interestingly enough, prophetically, it spans about 700 years. Uh, We'll have more on that later, but let's read this chapter together, or I'll read it. You can follow along, and then we'll jump in. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was fulfilled, or so that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive in. Father, we've come now to the time of this service where we focus intensely on your word. Uh, we know that we can go nowhere else but to you for the words of life. Uh, we know that all the scriptures are edifying. They, they build us up. They teach us. They instruct us in righteousness that we might be complete and furnished for the good works that you've ordained in our lives, God. So help us this morning to see you in the scripture, to see the glory of Christ in the scripture, to see your uh, providential work in human history, as is recorded here in Matthew 2. Pray that you'd be with us as we study and Christ be magnified in his name. I pray. Amen. I want to ask a question by way of introduction this morning, uh, and it's this. What is the most historically significant thing that you can recall in your lifetime? Now, I understand asking a question like that. I've opened your mind up now to wander, so <laughs> I, I know that's going to happen. And you're probably thinking, and maybe something instantly pops into your mind, and I'd love to hear about that later. When we think about things that are historically significant, we can think in a number of categories. For instance, in my lifetime, perhaps the most significant uh, national or even international historic event to me is no doubt 9-11-2001. Even though I was just a child, I remember the events as we watched them on the television like it was yesterday. Maybe a good way to frame uh, events of historic significance is that in the moment, in the moment, it feels like the world has come to a pause or at least slowed down, uh, an intensified focus on the here and the now. But there's more than one category, because in another way, uh, I can remember things that are more personally significant, uh, more significant to me even than that great tragedy. I think of the death of particular family members, and I know that while the events around 9-11, for instance, in the following years of fallout, are more significant in scope, I know that the death of my grandmother or my sister or perhaps something else like my wedding or the birth of my children, those are much more personally significant to me than even that great tragedy. That is, I personally frame my memories, thoughts, and even some of my actions and decisions around those personal things more than I would something like an international crisis. Think of it this way, both 9-11 and my wedding are both historical events. They're historic in two categories, perhaps, but they're both historic in that they happened at a point in time, yet the personal significance always outweighs the broader significance. A man I knew uh, was famous for saying something like this, nothing is truly real until it's personal. Nothing is truly real until it's personal. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, uh, we're dealing with a number of historic events. That's why uh, I brought that question to your attention. But they really all center on and fall out or happen because of one big historical event, and that is the historical event we looked at last week, the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew frames Jesus' birth in this chapter in its historical significance in several ways. He puts forth the advent, uh, the birth of Jesus, that was historically significant in his day. It's something that affected his thoughts and his decisions, his actions. 
something that affected the thoughts and actions of others as well, not just him. It affected the decision of a number of Eastern Magi to make the journey to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem to see this newborn king. It affected the thoughts and decisions of Herod, who is furiously intent on pro uh, protecting his throne from any supposed heir. It affected the thoughts of the Jewish leaders as they interacted with the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. It affected the thoughts, the actions, and the decisions of Joseph as he reacted to the turmoil and led his family on two lengthy journeys. It affected the thoughts and the actions of families in Bethlehem as their infant boys were slaughtered at the hand of a wicked ruler. Even in his infancy, Matthew is pointing out the historic significance of the birth of Jesus. Yet, for many, the birth of Jesus is only historically significant in the same way that any other event of ancient history is significant. What is remarkable about the birth of Christ, uh, the historic fact of his advent and his life, is that it is significant in real history, but it also, it also has intense personal implications. You see, the gospel records, like Matthew, what we're studying, they're not meant to be mere records of history that we ponder, consider, or even take as a pattern. No, Jesus' coming has purpose and meaning personally. Consider his words in John 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What we see then in these historic events that Matthew records for us is that three primary things. There's worship, there's opposition, and then kind of centering over it all is this concept of providence. All these things are surrounding, pointing to, uh, leading to, or because of the birth of Jesus. Worship, opposition, and providence. And I will be so bold as to say that this framework applies universally to all human beings to this day. So here's the big idea that we'll keep in mind as we view this passage. God has worked providentially in human history to exalt himself through Jesus Christ. Do we worship or oppose him? Now, we already looked in great detail uh, at the first 12 verses of this chapter during Christmas season. So uh, if it feels like today's sermon is glossing over details or jumping past uh, your favorite part of the Christmas story, feel free to go back and listen to that sermon. Uh, it's on YouTube somewhere from December. But I want to take a little bit of a different approach this morning in that we're going to highlight these three categories in this narrative, worship, opposition, and providence. If you have uh, your outline handout this morning, you will see it's framed that way. So that's what we're going to do. We start off firstly with worship. Worship. Now in our passage, worship takes uh, place in the form of the visit of the Magi. Now you can debate, we can debate, or, or not necessarily debate, but speculate about exactly why they came to worship Jesus or exactly what they intended to convey by their worship to Jesus. Perhaps they only initially intended to convey a deep level of respect, 
uh, for another human dignitary. Although I'm of the persuasion that they were deeply and spiritually impacted when they came and saw the child, they fell down. They literally dropped down and worshipped him. In their limited understanding, and without the aid of the rest of the scripture that we have, I think their hearts were changed uh, or transformed, even in that moment, by the reality of Christ. But what comes into your mind when you think of worship? That's an important question. I think it's become largely, in our day, in our modern experience, it's become commonplace to equate worship uh, with just the songs that we sing during the worship service at church. Uh, We call this Sunday morning time a, a worship service. But what is worship? Worship in Scripture, in both the Old and New Testaments, means to prostrate oneself, to bow down, to bend low, to to make obeisance. It's a picture, a picture of placing yourself under another, a picture of lowering yourself, your significance, in light of the clearly higher significance of another. Now, our English word worship uh, comes into our language in the Old English, and it retains a sense of worthiness, uh, worthship. You can kind of hear it there. Here are some examples of where we have that uh, translated or used, the concept in Scripture. For one uh, instance, Psalm 95, a great uh, throne about God's kingship and royalty. Uh, Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So you see the word worship there, and then it's emphasized by the bowing down, the kneeling before the Lord, our maker, making yourself low before one who is clearly high or higher than you. Uh, Paul uses this uh, word, and it's translated differently depending on what you're reading, but many translations put it similar to this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You might have reasonable service there, but the whole concept is the big idea there, that we're presenting ourselves as an offering to God. We're laying ourselves down before him, and that is reasonable or acceptable worship to God. In the case of The next chapter in Matthew, which we'll look at next week, uh, says this. John the Baptist says this. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in that instance, John doesn't use the word worship, but he underlines that idea, right? Looking to Jesus, the one who would come after him, he said, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. You see in all these examples the idea of lowering yourself or offering yourself. In another place, John the Baptist said, he must increase while I must decrease. Uh, It's as in a gift or in service. This is exactly what the Magi displayed in their coming to see the newborn king, in their falling down, offering gifts, and paying homage. But what I also want to see is not just that particular action Because we are so inept uh, or adept to thinking of worship as just one action or one point in time in our life on a Sunday morning. But what is the disposition of the Magi as they're coming? 
What is their attitude around the whole thing? We see a few things. One, they were seeking him and looking for him. Worship of God doesn't happen apart from the constant seeking after, the pursuit of him. Now, when this is part of someone's life, it's evidence of the miraculous work of God through the Holy Spirit. No one seeks God naturally, but through the work of the Spirit, we come to realize that we need the Lord, that he's infinitely greater and he's worthy of our attention. Something else, they were rejoicing in him. They had been following this miraculous star. Uh, they came to Jerusalem, and they made no small scene about finding him. And when the star appeared again, they rejoiced greatly. And then when they met the object of their seeking, they were joyful, but also overcome with reverence. It's like Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price. When we find the one whom our soul longs for, we are exceedingly joyful. Something else, uh, the Magi made offerings of great value. They brought costly gifts, and monetary gifts can be a part of our worship. But I'm not speaking only of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm also speaking of the great lengths that they went to to make this journey, the provisions, the planning, the entourage, their persistence, the amount of sheer time and effort is all astounding, but it was Worth it. It was worth it because of the one they were looking to. If I can make a point of application here, it's to say this, that Jesus is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our effort, of our joy, our gladness, our reverence, our time, our service. That's why Paul in Romans 12 speaks of us offering ourselves to him as an act of worship. It's, it's as if to say, with our whole lives, Jesus, you are worthy. Worship is not merely in song. Otherwise, it can easily turn simply to lip service. It's so easy to walk through our entire week without cognitively recognizing uh, the place of Christ and his magnitude and significance, and then show up to church on Sunday and sing about how great he is. If it's only a song we sing, then it's not even really worship. Worship is not merely in our, our monetary offerings. For, for some people, it's really easy to give great, great amounts of money. They don't even miss it. Worship, rather, is the bowing down of our lives in every aspect, a recognition that he is worthy and we are not. It involves head and heart, Mouth and movement, service and sacrifice, joy and reverence. Listen, the historic fact of Jesus' life is so much more historically significant than any other ancient dignitary. Uh, for only Jesus, listen, only Jesus was born as Savior and King and Lord of all. Only Jesus can change the heart, the life, and the eternal destiny by his saving power. And only he, of all the sons born to Israel, of all the kings born in the earth, only he is worthy of such worship and adoration. Consider his words uh, when he was speaking to the woman at the well in John 4. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him 
must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is not simply the words that come from our mouth. It's a matter of the heart of the whole existence bowing down to the one who is worthy. So we see worship in the, 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 the journey of the Magi. And I know we're glossing past all the details, the gifts. Uh, all I can say is I'm sorry, but if, if I don't get going, we'll be here till you know, two or three o'clock. So uh, we're going to move on. Uh, worship, firstly, then we see opposition. Opposition. And when you read this passage and this narrative, it's clear, or it's apparently clear, where the opposition lies. Obviously, Herod was intensely opposed to any challenge to his throne. I think I mentioned in the sermon around Christmas time that Caesar Augustus, a friend of Herod, said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, which is ironic because Herod was king over Jewish people who didn't typically keep pigs as pets. Uh, but he was well-known, that is, Herod was well-known for his violent and deadly reactions to any suspicion of rebellion or an attempt to usurp. So uh, this one born king of the Jews, as these magi rolled into town with their entourage and were asking, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? This was a real threat in Herod's mind. But I want to go a little deeper this morning and think Along these lines, opposition does not always take the form of violent and murderous reactions. We can easily label Herod as an enemy of Jesus, okay? No questions about that. He literally tried to kill him. An enemy of the truth, he was that too. And in our way of human comparison, we can take comfort in that because we say, I would never be so murderous or so violent just to get my way. And that's probably true, okay? Uh, we're all born in sin. Uh, we, are, we are all sinful fully, but we're not all just completely and violently and ragingly angry and sinful and murderous. So that may be true that we would not have acted like Herod. But the question is, what is opposition or perhaps what is an enemy of God? Firstly, we think, of course, of Satan, that accuser of the, the saints, the brothers, who is labeled as the adversary of both God and God's children. He's clearly an enemy. He, he's clearly an attempted usurper of God's throne. He's intent on stopping and thwarting God's redemptive work. That is the behind-the-scenes battle, the behind-the-scenes opposition, the background enemy that we don't see with our eyes yet we certainly feel his attacks and his blows and the effects of his work against God's kingdom. Like Herod, we're happy to label the devil as God's enemy. That's a no-brainer in our mind. But being an enemy of God is not always so stark and repugnant. Enmity, or the outworking of enemies, was predicted against God's redemptive plan from the beginning. Think of Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In a similar way that we saw the surrounding attributes of worship in the Magi, what do we see around the surrounding elements of Herod as an enemy or of one who's in opposition to Jesus? Firstly, we see a troubled view 
of the Messiah. Herod's view of Jesus was a view that caused consternation, not joy and reverence, like for the Magi. He saw Jesus as a threat to his earthly kingdom. He saw Jesus as a threat to his goals and aspiration. He thought only a half, he though only a half Jew, as an Edomian, was surrounded by Israelites, many of which, as we see in later passages, were still looking for their Messiah, their deliverer king. Yet Herod's view was only personal and selfish. He saw Jesus as the enemy rather than the rescuer. Also involved in the case of Herod is intentional evil. Not every display of opposition to the Lord involves intentional and heinous evil, but in this case and many others, it does. Herod's violent rampage to take out all the boys uh, that had reached two years or younger in the region of Bethlehem is an extreme case of such evil. But it is a real and daunting example. History is filled with the violent opposition of truth in many ways. But a violent outbreak is nothing more than the outworking of a seething heart of opposition. While this magnitude of evil may not come out in our lives, this can and does exist in even the most quiet and timid of God's enemies. Something else we see is indifference. Now, Herod was not indifferent. He was completely and utterly opposed to what had taken place to the point of attempted murder and actual murder for many uh, young boys in Bethlehem. But there's also indifference in this story. Uh, think of the leaders, the chief priests and the scribes that Herod assembled and inquired from. These were men who knew the prophecies. They knew the scripture. Uh, in fact, they, they nailed it. They went to Micah and they said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's five miles away. They pointed to Bethlehem. But we have no record that anybody but the Magi took any interest or made the journey themselves to see such a marvelous miracle. There was indifference, at least on their part. Something else we see, false interest in worship, to tie it in with our last point. One of the most striking aspects, I think, in my mind, of Herod's opposition was the deceit that he used in order to gain information. He told the Magi, I want to go and worship him also. Of course, he only wanted the information to do harm, but false interest in worship can take other forms. For years, not just in our society, but we see this as a pattern in many societies across the world. It was a socially acceptable thing to be a church member, to attend church on Sunday, to name the name of Christ as a cultural appropriation. That still exists and takes place in pockets even in our country. Uh, I've been guilty of this. Have you ever attended church or participated in worship because you wanted to please family or friends? I can raise my hand that I have certainly done that at times in my life. I can't tell you the number of testimonies I have heard of people who participated in the Christian religion for social or family benefit. I, I, I can tell you stories of people I knew uh, in other cultures that even 
put out their business cards with crosses on it because it was socially acceptable and they would be seen as a reputable person. But inside, they admitted they had no desire or love or admiration or affection at all for Christ. Never having a real heart softened and changed by the truth of Christ. False interest in worship, while it can seem mundane or it can seem maybe a side issue, that's a form of opposition to the Lord. But an integral part of the miraculous work of the gospel is the reconciliation of God's enemies to become friends and citizens of his kingdom. Think of Paul's words in Romans 5. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. I ask this question. It's going to come across as harsh, but here it is. Are you an enemy of Christ? It does sound harsh, but it's really not an accusatory question. We are all natural-born enemies of the Lord. Not one of us, including me, has been born into God's kingdom by our physical birth. Not one of us has entered God's kingdom by our family heritage. Rather, we are reconciled from being God's enemies to his friends, his sons and daughters, and citizens of his kingdom. We are reconciled and brought near by the blood of Jesus, and we are made his friends not by nature, but by new birth. That's the miracle of the gospel. Worship, opposition. Finally, the theme that we see in all of this is providence. Providence. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, providence used to be a normal term of the English language. It was used uh, especially a lot during the, the, the founding days of our nation. You read a lot of the literature from that day, and it speaks much of God's providence, his, his watch care, his working in human events uh, to do his will. Uh, we even have a city in our nation named Providence. So uh, how do we see this in this passage today? Well, as we said, God worked providentially through history to exalt himself through Jesus Christ. Consider John 12, verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, when I, uh, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show uh, by what kind of death he was going to die. The most remarkable example of God's providential working in history is the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Literal, historical events that were meant to transform human beings, human history, human nature. Jesus Christ is drawing people, his enemies, he is drawing his enemies to himself to be reconciled by his work. But God's providence is far-reaching, and it touches every aspect of history. And we see that in our passage today, especially as it relates to Jesus. I mentioned that these events took place over six months or 
a couple years at the most, but prophetically they span around 700 years. Matthew chapter 2 is packed with fulfillment quotations. It's clear how God was providentially working through the prophets of the Old Testament to predict and warn of the coming of the Messiah, but he was also providentially working in the direct circumstances in our passage as well. God providentially worked in the lives of the Magi to give them an interest and insight to be interested in this newborn king at all, even from afar. We don't know exactly how or why these men were interested. Some speculate it goes all the way back to the time of Daniel in Babylon. Uh, some speculate that these were simply learned men who took an interest in, the, uh, in Balaam's prophecy of the star of Jacob. Some speculate that there was a miraculous revelation to them so that they would follow this new star. However the case, it wound up through providence that these, uh, these Eastern uh, magicians, whatever they were, these noble men in their entourage made that journey to come see this king. This reminds me of Paul's words in Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The far off ones have been brought near. We see that as a picture or as a type in the Magi as they came from a great distance to worship Christ. But we see it specifically and pointedly in Paul's words here where he says, you who were far off, and I point the finger back at me. Me, who was far off, I have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that wouldn't have happened without God's providential working in history to make the gospel a reality. God providentially worked in, his, in the appearance of this star that we have in this passage. Uh, was it a supernova? Was it a shooting star? Was it a convergence of planets? Perhaps. Uh, but regardless, God worked in creation to make it thus. And he also providentially works in the lives of his enemies to make faith, to bring interest, to draw where before there was only disdain and indifference. God also in our passage worked through uh, providentially through human leadership and care. Last week we saw that Joseph was not called to be the physical father of Jesus, but he was called to be the husband of Mary and an adoptive father of Jesus. And in that role, he was responsible for their care and safety. A young woman in that day, especially with a child, needed a husband. God knew that. He gave Mary one. He knew that Herod's wickedness would cause him to kill all these little boys in Bethlehem, and he knew that this young family would need an escape. Listen, miracles don't always take the form of instant deliverance. Miracles aren't always accompanied uh, by a bright, shining light coming down from heaven. Sometimes miracles take the form of God imparting wisdom to his people and giving them the strength to follow through with their calling. God told Joseph to take his family to Egypt, and he worked uh, providentially through Joseph's obedience to do so. It was a miracle that Christ Jesus escaped uh, the murderous rampage of Herod. But how did it come? It came through Joseph following through, being obedient to his role as a, as a husband, as a father. 
Yes, God could even make the rocks cry out if he chose to, but what does he do instead? He uses us. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. God works through our obedience, and he gives us the strength to do that as his children. God also and clearly worked providentially through prophecy. There are four prophetic quotes or allusions in this chapter, all of which are fulfilled through the tumultuous narrative that we have just read, or at the beginning of the sermon we read. When we think of prophecy and fulfillment, uh, we often think of this picturesque situation where a promise is kept with shining significance and radiance. But here we see that God's plan often includes even great tragedy within the realm of his providence. In verse number six, Matthew tells us of the chief priests and the scribes quoting from Micah 5.2 about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 we see and we take as a direct prophecy fulfilled, as a marker of the royal line of Jesus as he was to be born in the city of David. That was fulfilled, as we were told, uh, when Joseph took first Mary as she was great with child on that journey to be taxed. Again, we see God working through prophecy, through human interactions, through obedience, all those things, but yet God's hand is behind it all, and it was fulfilled in that way. In verse number 15, uh, we're told of the young family's departure to Egypt to go back to uh, Israel. Uh, Sorry, did I skip one? No, I'm good. In verse 15, we're told of their departure from Egypt to go back to Israel after Herod's death. which Matthew tells us is to fulfill Hosea 11.1, that out of Egypt I have called my son. Now this prophecy is a little bit different. Whereas Micah is more of a direct uh, prophecy and fulfillment, uh, Hosea 11.1 we see is kind of a, a type or a picture. Because Hosea was speaking in his mind of Israel coming out of Egypt. Yet Matthew tells us that it was pointing to the true Israel or the true Son of God, the true chosen one, Jesus Christ. In this sense, then, Jesus fulfilled this geographic prophecy. We also know he fulfilled the law and obedience and sacrifice perfectly. The picture of uh, God delivering his people out of Egypt In the story of the Exodus is a story of God's deliverance and his power and his salvation of his people in a very real way. But as he sent his son, Jesus Christ, delivering him first from great danger in in the murderous rampage of Herod, uh, taking him to Egypt, bringing him back to Israel where he would minister, that is the ultimate salvation, the ultimate deliverance of God's people in God's true son that he called also out of Egypt. In verse number 18, Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, as she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This allusion to Rachel in Jeremiah points to the fact that Rachel, if we remember the story, uh, was the mother of kind of both nations of Israel and Judah in the fact that she was the beloved wife of Jacob, who is the father of the 12, but she was the mother of Benjamin, 
which became a tribe of Judah, and she was the mother of Joseph, who was father of Ephraim and Manasseh, two half-tribes of Israel. Rachel was not alive in Jeremiah's day, but she was spoken of by Jeremiah as a picture in that when both Israel and Judah had been carried away, these, her children, were great cause for weeping. Ramah was the location where the exiles were gathered to be taken to Babylon in 586 BC. But what is the connection to the death of the young boys in Bethlehem? We could go into a lot of uh, speculations here. I think maybe the most clear uh, one implication we can draw from this is because Rachel's grave uh, is in that same region of Bethlehem. It's very close to what was known in that day as well, in Jesus' day, as, as Ramah. So now uh, Matthew points to this and says, yes, uh, God's people were carried away in exile. It was a cause for weeping. And in the same way here, Rachel, as she's been dead and gone years, but her children have been tormented and even murdered at the hand of a wicked ruler, just as there was weeping for the captivity of both Israel and Judah. Remarkable, though, is that God's promise to deliver his people is pictured here in that he delivered Jesus, his son, out of that tragedy. And because the deliverer was rescued from this in the providence of God, he lived to be our rescuer, the savior of his people. The final prophecy that Matthew mentions is in the last verse, verse number 23, and it's a little different than the rest. Uh, here, Matthew does not quote a single Old Testament scripture, but rather he cites the general sense of the Old Testament prophets as a whole. It tells of Joseph coming to, to Israel, and then uh, when he found out that Archelaus was reigning, who was one of Herod's sons and turned out to be just as evil as Herod himself, uh, when Archelaus was reigning, he was afraid to go there, and he was warned again in a dream to go to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What does it mean that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Uh, some make ties uh, to the call of Samson, who is called to be a, a Nazarite, um, I don't know if I see that connection or not. Um, perhaps there are ties and pictures of Samson in, in the life of Christ, but not as a whole. Um, what does it mean that one would be from Nazareth? Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was small and insignificant in the time of Christ. Uh, this maybe is most pointedly pictured when Nathaniel, the disciple, before he was called, when he heard where Jesus' home was, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was kind of like the podunk place. Like, there's nothing there. Um, history tells us that maybe there were four or 500 people there. You know, that's, that's about the size of Ira. I like living in Ira, but if I tell someone in New York City that I'm from Ira, Vermont, what are they going to say? Where's that? You know? It's kind of like that idea. There's nothing bad about it. I love it here. But it's, it's not monumental. He wasn't born in Jerusalem or lived in Jerusalem. Uh, he wasn't born in a palace. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I think because Matthew cites prophets here plurally, he doesn't give any specific passage. He, he's kind of citing the theme of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be despised 
of no reputation and somewhat infamous. Jesus was prophesied as one who would be humble and not taken seriously by his people. He was prophesied as one who would need delivering from great trouble. He is prophesied as one who would be rejected, not, not esteemed, not even considered. He would be a sufferer, lowly, bruised, afflicted, killed. When someone thought of Nazareth in that day, they would think, what does that have to do with anything? In the same way, Jesus' people did not receive him. They rejected him as an outcast, even a blasphemer. Points to John's words in the prologue to his gospel where he says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is our Jesus. This Historical Jesus, yes, but the personal, real Jesus. The story of Christ is the story of worship, opposition, and providence. The coming of Jesus is both monumental historically, but it's monumental personally. The right to become children of God, that is a remarkable offer that no other king born at any time could offer. The king who, though opposed by the devil, his demons, and all the sons of man still came to live and die, to rise again, giving life to all who will call upon his name. And you and me, though natural-born enemies and opposers of this king, can be reconciled, given new life, and brought into his kingdom, both now and forever. Because as we read last week, this is the king who came to save his people from their sins. This is the king who is king over all, not just those who are alive in first century Palestine. This is the king over not just those who accepted him in that day, but this is the king who gives the right to become sons of God to all who believe in his name. And with that, I ask again, are you, let me ask it this way, are you still an enemy of Christ? The miracle of the gospel is that though we are all born in that state, none of us has to remain that way. The offer of the gospel is genuine and real. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who comes to this King, King Jesus, who lived died and rose again for our salvation. Everyone who believes in his name will become the sons of God, no longer enemies but friends, no longer in opposition but family, no longer outsiders and far off but citizens of his kingdom. God has worked providentially in human history to exalt himself through Jesus Christ. Do we worship or oppose him? Do you worship or oppose him? That's the question for today. 
Are you delighted in him because your heart and life have been changed by the gospel? Or are you indifferent? If you see Jesus and you can take him or leave him, that, my friend, is evidence that you're not his friend but his enemy. But he can change your heart. He can take out that heart of stone, of indifference and opposition. He can give you a new heart of flesh to love, adore, worship, and seek him all of your days.